Welcome to Talk About Poetry, where working poets gather to discuss poems they like, are impressed by, annoyed by, or otherwise engaged by. I'm Bob Hers, publisher and editor of Nine Mile Magazine, which you can find online at ninemile.org, of the Nine Mile Talk About Poetry blog, which you can also find online, and of Nine Mile Press, publisher of books by David St. John, James Cervantes, Michael Burkhardt, Sam Pereira, and many others. Nine Mile Books and Magazine are the sponsors of this podcast. Today we present a discussion with Andrea Scarpino about her new book, What the Willow Said as It Fell. Ms. Scarpino is the author of Once Then from Red Hen Press, 2014, and the chapbook The Grove Behind from Finishing Line Press. She currently serves as Poet Laureate of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. With me today is co-publisher and editor of the Nine Mile series, Stephen Cusisto. And I'm Steve Cusisto, author of two books of poems most recently, Letters to Borges, and two memoirs, uh, Planet of the Blind and Eavesdropping, uh, A Life of Blindness by Ear. A word about this new book. It's a single long poem, a meditation on chronic pain and love and nature and words and the impossibility of ever really understanding what ails us and of explaining it to anyone else. Yet the book is joyful. It presents a vision of what it means to be human in this world when every moment must be a matter of intention, of choice to live, and to find peace against a visible opponent without a name, a disease without a diagnosis. Andrea, I wonder if I might start by asking you what prompted you to write this book. Yeah, I would love to. So I had this you know, real desire to explore the book length form, first of all. So a couple of years ago, I got really interested in how much weight, I guess, a line could hold and how far I could push a poem. So could I push a poem into three pages or four pages or five pages? And as somebody who wrote really short lyrics for most of my writing career, that was really exciting to be able to kind of keep pushing the line further and further and further. And so I got really interested in whether or not I could sustain one subject over the course of entire book. Um, So that was kind of part one, I guess, getting really interested in the book length form. Part two was that I'd been, you know, studying disability studies for a a while with Steve and others and thinking about disability and realized I had never actually written about any of my own health challenges through the years. And I thought, you know, as I began to do some research in in what other people had written about chronic pain, that there wasn't much out there. You know, there's some poems here and there about migraine or um, poems here and there about kind of mental illness of different sorts. But to really have the chance to sit down with a whole book that was somehow trying to get at the, a, a chronic pain experience, I couldn't find anywhere. And so I, I guess I kind of took the Toni Morrison uh, approach, which was, if you can't find it out there, you write it yourself. <laughs> um, so I started to try to write some of my own experiences, some of my medical experiences, and thought, well, this might be a really good opportunity to try out the book-length form and see if this form is able to hold all of the things I want to say about chronic pain and illness. Steve? So, for your podcast listeners, uh, Andrea and I are old friends and colleagues, and over the years we've had plenty of conversations about the nature and meaning of words in their relationship to 
our embodied lives. Right? That peculiar term, embodiment, right? We're embodied not merely because we're born into our natural bodies, um, but we're embodied also by the way in which what our bodies appear to represent to others takes on uh, separate meanings, um, meanings that are often beyond our own control. Right? So Andrea mentioned disability studies, and that's one of the areas where many poets and writers have been working over the last, oh, 20, 30 years in the manner of a poet like Adrian Rich, right? Taking back uh, what others say about your body and reclaiming uh, a kind of, of propriety ownership of, of your own body, writing about it in its, in its own terms. And so I wonder, Andrea, if you would just talk a little bit about uh, that process, that I sense that there is some of that thinking behind your pages. Yeah, I love what you said about taking back your body, because I think, at least for me, as and I think this is common of many people who live with disability or live with illness, that we become subjects of the medical establishment, right? So the doctor is interpreter suddenly of our situation in a lot of situations. And I found that really disempowering at a certain point. I had spent, before before I began writing this book, I had, uh, you know, gone to different specialists across the country trying to figure out what my pain issues were about. I spent a week at the Mayo Clinic being prodded and tested and, you know, having all sorts of the best specialists in the country poke at me. And I walked away with nothing, with no diagnosis. They told me they don't understand hormones. They don't understand how hormones work. And we're, you know, maybe a century away from understanding any of these things. So I, I felt really disempowered and, and frustrated and just kind of had wanted, had gone there wanting answers and felt like I didn't, I left there with no answers. So I guess part of the writing of this book was a desire to reclaim my body and find answers for myself, you know, reclaim the idea of, okay, I may have chronic pain that returns, you know, through the rest of my life, um, but I can still live a beautiful life. And how can I do that? And how can I approach that? And how can I reclaim the subject position from the medical establishment? So I think that was at the heart of a lot of these poems, honestly. So also for our listeners, I think, uh, picking up on what you just said about finding the language to narrate one's own bodily experience set against the backdrop of medical, you know, determinism is the whole issue of uh, what they call in disability studies, the medical model of disability. Yes. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that uh, because I think for poetry readers, that would be interesting. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, my framework in part based on you, I think, and our, our conversations through the years and then some of my other reading and disability is that disability is a cultural construct. And it's really the, I, the idea of how the individual interacts with culture and, you know, our, our society around us. Um, the medical model really is, is more about 
you know, deviation from normalcy in a sense. Um, so if you, you know, we've decided that X, Y, Z is how, you know, normal human beings and that I wish you had finger quotes. I'm putting finger quotes around normal, uh, how normal human beings are average human beings, whatever. Um, then if you deviate from that in any way, you're somehow abnormal, you're ill, you're sick, you're a problem for the medical community to solve that kind of thing. And I think, Part of the empowering nature of a lot of the work that's being done in disability is really challenging that notion, right? That, you know, normalcy looks like many, many different things and many more different things than the medical establishment will, will lead you to believe. And that we have a right to claim what is normal for us and, you know, what beautiful lives look like for each of us, I guess. I think that's exactly right. Um, and then there's one other thing, right, that, that's really interesting, and I want to hand this back to Bob in a second, but I would say it's because this is about pain, um, these poems, the book itself is about pain, um, you know, pain falls into the category of invisible disability. It's yeah. not a disability that the, you know, that people can see, you know, if you and I were going down the street together, uh, people would see you as a relatively... Um, customary 35 year old woman and they would see me as you know a blind man because of my guide dog and so they they would not see your disability though yours is every bit as encompassing and full and complex in your life as my vision loss and um, what I'm getting at here is that um, in some respects when you have an invisible disability the the nature of language and how you're going to think about yourself and also about the quality of your experience uh, becomes way more important. Not that it isn't important for me. I'm, I'm endlessly confronted with pejorative values of blindness and trying to turn those around for other people. Uh, but at the same time, at least, uh, you know, the, I don't have to explain what the disability is, uh, in every instance. So you've got you've got the double edge dynamic of the necessity for language to declare your disability, but also then to deal with the fact that mysterious pain is always changing its nature, uh, which is why I use the word protean, right? That it's all, it's a shapeshifter, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting. I, I think. I have lived with a lot of challenges because of my disabilities being invisible. Um, I've had, you know, so many people say when I disclose my chronic pain experience, oh, but you seem like such a happy person or, oh, but you're so accomplished or something like that. Oh, I never would have guessed, you know, um, and I always take offense to that. I know it's well-meaning, but I think it discloses this underlying belief that disability equals um horrible things, right? People with disabilities are home alone, miserable, nobody loves them, they don't have successful careers. All of those kind of stereotypes, I think, come to the forefront when people congratulate you for being a successful person in pain. Um, I think it's also, I mean, a lot of writers have talked about the untranslatability of pain, how hard it is to describe to somebody else what pain is, which I think is part of what you're getting at, Steve, and, and was part of my challenge in writing this book, that I wanted to be able to say at least this is one experience of living with recurrent pain. Um, and it's true that my 
disability is not a part of a, you know, devastating illness. I had doctors say, oh, well, at least you don't have cancer. (laughs) And I thought, well, right, I'm glad I don't have cancer. But at the same time, that doesn't make the chronic pain any less or the kind of the attitude of, well, just buck up, take more painkillers, go about your day, don't worry about it. It's not life threatening. Um, And those are those are challenges, right? When you're trying to live on a daily basis, when you're thinking to yourself, even. I mean, I had many times when I told myself, well, it's not life threatening, Andrea, you know, get, pull it together. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, so I think it's complicated, I guess. Um, the different types of visibility or dis- different types of disabilities, whether visible or invisible, and how we think about them, our stereotypes about them, they make for some real complexity in, in writing and thinking about about this. Right. And, and we've just outlined the dramatic equality to the, the quest to write the book that there's a body in pain and it's a complex situation to be invisibly disabled by pain and to have to navigate within the bounds of the medical establishment. Uh, well, behind all of that medical diagnoses or failure to diagnose, there's a life going on, which is mysterious. Right and wants its own answers. And then, right, as though that wasn't hard enough, you tackle something uh, through poetry that is at the heart of all poetry, which is that we don't have sufficient language for pain. Yeah. Right? So the poems are really interlocking, interconnected workings out, or chapters, if you will, um, marshalling language in the service of explaining what can't be explained which I think is really terrifically interesting. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I think Virginia Virginia Woolf has this really slim volume on being ill where she talks about how, you know, the school girl, the merest school girl who's in love can rely on the language of Shakespeare to kind of talk about her feelings and yet, you know, try to describe a headache to a physician and our language runs dry. And she describes that as the poverty of language, which I think is a really interesting uh, term. So I do use throughout the book, this kind of as in dictionary definition, uh, repetition, right? As in this, as in this, as in this, trying to find different entry points to talking about this experience that is so hard to get into words. There's a bunch of themes in the book, Andre, that, um, that, that really caught me. One is not having your pain explained or diagnosed, if you will, or, or having the right word to put with that pain, right? So that it goes away. Uh, it, 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 there's a, an indeterminacy, which seemed to me to be one of the major themes uh, in the book, uh, which I thought, at least in the way I read it, bled into the, not only the impossibility of description, but the impossibility of explaining it uh, to a loved one, because there's no parallel experience. There's there's a kind of metaphorical experience with the wasps that maybe brings things closer, but it's not a parallel you know, ongoing day-by-day daily experience uh, of this particular kind of inexplicable or unexplained pain. Um, and I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit and also about the, if you will, the uh, nature and the tree imagery, the shared DNA uh, formulation that we come into kind of late in the book as a way of, it seemed to me, both embracing and surrendering at the same time. Let me start with maybe... Um 
the, you know, the, the tree imagery. How about that? Um, so I, w- I got really interested in, well, I love trees, first of all, just kind of on a, a, a silly beginning note. Um, but there's a lot, a long history of writing, connecting human, bo- human bodies with the tree. Um, so in, in really in some interesting ways. So for example, the willow tree has in its, um, branches this chemical called salicin, which is used to make aspirin. So before people had aspirin for pain relief, they would chew on willow branches, which I thought was really fascinating. And then there's this association with the ash tree, which is another tree that makes quite an appearance in the book of um, healing. So in some traditions, it was thought if you were ill and you passed underneath an ash tree, the ash tree would heal you. Um, in the Norse tradition, Ask and Embla are the very first human beings and they come out of an ash tree, which I thought was really neat. So there's this long history of kind of human bodies um, connected to trees. Even the language in which we talk about trees is really similar to humans, right? We have limbs, we have um, arteries, we have branches of different medicine, for example. Uh, I have a surgeon friend who describes the heart as arborescent um, with all of these different veins and things coming out of it. So I loved the fact of the language that we use to talk about trees, even, you know, the heart of a tree, for example, and um, heartwood and our our heart. Um, there was just a lot of interesting sparks there, I guess, for a writer to use that kind of language and think about the ways in which our bodies are connected, maybe to to tree bodies and tree language. Um, there's also, you know, Frida Kahlo, who's a beautiful visual artist and also suffered most of her life from chronic pain. A lot of her paintings show the body as a tree in different ways. And I, and I was really connected to that as well. So I think the indeterminacy maybe of the language and of the pain experience, I found some solace in grounding in the tree language. I didn't want the book to become too abstract, right? I wanted to give the reader something specific and uh, concrete to kind of ground some of the other language. So I think I rely on some of the tree mythology as a way to do that. I also thought there were some extraordinary mystical passages, that deer that pops up uh, with the very delicate and careful description of the ear uh, was was more than enchanting. I thought it was really a kind of transcendental moment uh, in there. I, there was, I, I don't know that I quite got that fixed in my head, but there was a relationship between the solace that the speaker of the poem needed and the appearance of the deer and the way nature seemed to arrange itself uh, in the in the passage through the world. Oh yeah, I'm glad you you that resonated with you. So that is an actual deer. Uh, there's this small little group of of deer in Michigan that in Marquette where I live that are totally white. They're albino deer, I guess. Um, and I had never known that existed until I moved to Marquette and saw one, of course, in the cemetery of all places. So I had been in a walk through the cemetery because I I enjoy hanging out with the dead people. And this entirely white kind of ghostly vision of a deer appeared. And then as I talked with other people about it afterwards, I learned that there's this little group of of albino deer that exist in Marquette. And um, I worry about them every hunting season because they don't blend in very well. <laughs> um, but they seem to be doing really well, at least in the city limits. And so that was, for me personally, a magical moment, I guess, to think about that deer appearing in the graveyard um, and 
I I don't know exactly how I don't remember how it kind of worked its way into the book, but when it did, I liked that magic that to have that magic appear. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the ending figure on this, where the where the, the speaker, the woman, uh, becomes a tree or surrenders to tree or embraces tree or? Yeah. So I I thought for a long time about how I was going to end this book. Um, I didn't want to wrap it up in a neat bow and say kind of, and then there's a diagnosis or, and then the pain goes away or something like that. Right. First of all, that's not true to my own experience. And I think it's not true to most people's experiences um, who live with illness or disability, but I also felt like that would be too neat, right. On the the journey I was trying to take with the reader um, that would be, just it would be false. It would be a too neat kind of false ending. So I thought a lot about how I wanted to end the book. And again, returning to tree, I guess, was a way to to ground it. Um, there's a long history in literature of humans being turned into t- trees or being freed from trees. You can think about Ariel being freed by po- Prospero in The Tempest, for example. Um, I think Daphne is turned into a tree to avoid the advances of Apollo. So there's some really neat kind of resonant resonation there, I guess, for me. Um, but I liked, I mean, I played around a lot with the ending too, in terms of giving the speaker agency. So at the end, she says, I turned myself to tree. Um, not that she, she was turned into tree, you know, by medicine or something like that. But I wanted to give her a little bit of agency to say, I'm making this choice to turn myself into tree. Um, and for me, that was, a really important, powerful way to end. And I saw it also, it meaning the figure of the self-turned to tree by its own uh, admission, its own incantation, right? Is also to say, um, I embrace my vulnerability just as a tree is vulnerable and also my own beauty just as a tree is transcendently beautiful. Right. It's a it, it, that figure cuts both ways, and um, and pain just has to go along for the ride, right? I mean, it's a kind of triumph. Yeah, I'm glad you see it that way. Uh, I did mean it to be triumphant. Um, it's a little hard because you know it's also mythological in its scope, right? Because we can't actually, as human beings, turn ourselves into trees that I know of, um, but. So I, I did worry about that if I was kind of relying too heavy on the myth and not on the reality. But um, I, I like what you say about that, Steve. Uh, one last thing I'll say is that poets have to live in the past uh, and reclaim it and make it uh, new in the present. And, you know, Wordsworth, of course, is the famous example of this, right, that he revisits his childhood and makes it into sensible poetry within the context or framing of adulthood. But it's also incredibly important when thinking about disablement in general and pain in particular, that you allude, for instance, to childhood moments of crippling pain when you're pounding on the, you know, the door of your room and pain will make you, it will break you down into, uh, into childhood. It infantilizes. And so one of the missions of the poems and the book itself is to, is to force pain to confront a adult. 
Yeah, I love that. I love that, Steve. I mean, I think that, you know, while I don't want to fall into the trap of um, making disability or illness or pain, you know, all negative, you know, negativity, I also don't want to make it all rosy <laughs> and kind of, you know, oh, no, it's great. It's it's made me such a great person having to live with chronic pain or something like that, which I don't believe. Um, so I think that it is important to me to include the worst moments as well as the joyful moments, right? To acknowledge that those really hard moments exist um, and that that's okay that they exist. I also want to make a note on something because, you know, we talk about disability and we talk about pain and I don't want anybody who hasn't read the book yet not to know that there's also, at least in my reading, tremendous joy uh, throughout the book and, and vitality uh, throughout the book, even in the searching and the and the efforts on that. Could you talk about that a little bit, Andrea? Oh, yeah. So I'm glad you felt that. Um, again, I think I didn't want it to be a total downer of a book <laughs> um, because my life is not a downer, right? And I think it's most people who live with pain have joyful lives just as much as painful lives, right? Um, I think there's there's that joy, hopefully, in most of our experiences, no matter what uh, our bodies are doing on, on any given day. So I did want that to be present. Um, and I did want to have as full of a perspective on on pain as possible. I mean, that's why I included, in part, the found poem from the professional football players, that I was really intrigued by the idea that they are living every single day for decades in chronic pain in order to do this thing they love, to play the sport they love that is racking their body, you know, that they're living with constant injury, um, but that they continue doing it because of this. It provides so much other joy in their lives, right? They want to play this sport that's so important to them. Um, so I was trying to get this kind of 360 degree view into the book, I guess, and not have it be myopic or just hit one note. I didn't, I guess that's the biggest thing. I didn't want it to hit one note. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Steve. This is the Talk About Poetry podcast sponsored by Nine Mile Magazine and Nine Mile Books. We hope you've enjoyed this production. Our music is by Bob Perry, an Emmy Award-winning musician who lives and works in Syracuse, New York. Production is by Patrick McDougall at the World Harmony Studios. Thanks to all.